0: evidence and answers. There are three views Christian scientists and theologians hold regarding the age of the Earth and the universe: Young Earth creationism, theistic evolution, and Old Earth creationism. Many are familiar with the Young Earth creationist view. However, there is some confusion between Old Earth creationism and theistic evolution. But what are the differences between these two? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in our broadcast, Pat will be speaking with Dr. Fazal Rana as they discuss the differences and why they are not theistic evolutions. Now with part one of today's message is our host, Pat Zukran.
1: You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. The three views Christian scientists and theologians hold regarding the age of the earth and the universe young earth creationism, theistic evolution and old earth creationism. Many are familiar with young earth creationism. This view teaches that the term day in Genesis 1 refers only to a literal 24 hour period and therefore many in this position believe that the earth and some even hold that the universe as well is about six to ten thousand years old. However, there is some confusion between the latter two. Old Earth Creationism, and Theistic Evolution. What are the differences between these two? How compatible is the Biblical Creation account and Darwin's theory of evolution? Can we bring the two together? Well, to help us with this issue is Dr. Fazale Rana. He is the Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe, a fantastic ministry there dealing in the area of scientific apologetics. He is the author of several Great books that you ought to read, including Humans 2.0, Who Was Adam, and Creating Life in the Lab. He holds a Ph.D. in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. So he's a regular on the show. So, Fuzz, welcome back to Evidence and Answers. Hey, Pat, it's great to hang out with you again. Thanks for having me. Yes. Now, as, as we begin, explain to us the differences between Old Earth creationism or progressive creationism and theistic evolution.
2: Yeah, you, you know, Pep, I think it's interesting that so often people tend to cluster Old Earth creationism together with theistic evolution. And the only thing that these two views actually have in common is the recognition that the Earth and the universe are is on the order of billions of years in age with the earth being four and a half billion years old and the universe maybe 13.8 billion years and also what these views share is that the fossil record is a real proxy for the history of life on earth that's where those two views end in terms of it or that's where it ends in terms of the commonality between those two views in fact many people are surprised to learn that old earth creationism has much more in common with young Earth creationism than with theistic evolution. And the idea behind theistic evolution is that God has used evolution as a way to create, whereas old Earth creationists would say, yes, indeed, the Earth is old, that, again, there is a a fossil record describing 3.8 billion years of life's history, but that God repeatedly intervened in a direct personal way to bring about his creative purposes. And old earth creationists express a high degree of skepticism about the, the validity and the credibility of the evolutionary paradigm. So uh, old earth creationists would largely reject the idea that God employed evolution as a way to create, but rather, like young earth creationists, see God intervening. And both old earth and young earth creationists view the Genesis 1 creation account as being a real history of God's creative work. The difference would be that old Earth creationists would say day refers to a period of time. Young Earth creationists would say it refers to 24 hours. And both uh, affirm a historical Adam and Eve as being created by God in his image, being the sole progenitors of all humanity. And again, both would reject the idea of human evolution. And so remarkably, young Earth and older creationism share much more common ground than does older creationism share with theistic evolution. But many times people kind of conflate the two, but they really are very different views.
1: Yes, you know, and some of the best books that have been accepted, you know, not only by the Christian scientific community, but as the academic scientific community as well. Some of the best books that argue for intelligent design and argue against Darwinian evolution actually come from the old Earth creationists.
2: Yes, I think that's indeed the case, because you know, when when it comes to a, an old Earth creationist position, you can make a very powerful case that there must be a creator that brought the universe into existence. That the universe displays elegant design. Uh, many old Earth creationists point out uh, the, the the very serious problems with. Uh, chemical evolution or abiogenesis or the origin of life, where life would emerge out of a primordial soup. Many would, again, point out that the features of the fossil record look like they are describing a creation, a sequence of creation events. And of course, the design arguments that are made with regard to uh, biochemical and biological systems, again, many times actually depend on an older perspective to have the full thrust of the argument. So you are right that that not only are many of the best books defending a biblical worldview from a scientific perspective written by old Earth creationists, they all they actually require an old Earth perspective to have the full weight of the argument behind them.
1: Yeah, as far as uh, breaking off on a tangent here, why do you think there's sometimes, you know, unfortunately, such animosity between the young Earth position and the old Earth creationist position when they, they share so much in common?
2: You know, I I think, Pat, I've thought about this a lot over the years, and I think that the primary concern here is the issue of of biblical inerrancy. That's at least one of the primary issues. Because, And I actually respect my brothers and sisters who are young earth creationists in terms of their staunch defense of biblical inerrancy. And the concern is that if Scripture clearly teaches that the earth is young or that day in Genesis 1 must be 24 hours, then to try to marry that with a mainstream scientific view on the age of the earth or the age of the universe would undermine the inerrancy of scripture. Almost everybody who I know as an old Earth creationist holds firmly to biblical inerrancy and actually would argue that while one reading of day in Genesis 1 could be 24 hours, that word that's translated as day in Hebrew, yom, can actually literally mean a period of time, or an epic. And so in that case, then really reading the Genesis 1 account as historically, you know, as a historical description of God's creative work, where day is a period of time, could actually be understood actually as a literal reading, where young literally means a period of time. But to me, that's part of the concern, I think, is the issue of, of biblical inerrancy. And so I genuinely respect the fact that young earth creationists, have that level of concern that they want to challenge any perspective they think that would erode or undermine biblical inerrancy.
1: Yes, uh, you brought up the term day there in Genesis, and it's used about three different ways there in the first three chapters of Genesis. Uh, give us just brief, I know it's a deep question, but just a brief run-through of how the term is used in different ways, even in the Genesis creation account.
2: Yeah, well, that's a great question. Well, for example, on the first day of creation, we see light being separated from darkness, that God is intervening to separate light from darkness, and light he calls day, and darkness he calls night. And so here, day, in that context, is actually 24 hours. It's setting up, the text is describing this God setting up the day-night cycle on the earth. But that is all happening within the context of, a creation day. And so the well-known Hebrew and Old Testament scholar, Walt Kaiser, points out that what you see here in the first day of creation is God creating the first calendar day. So he argues that that means that a creation day must be something distinct uh, from a calendar day. So even on the first day of creation, the word yom is used in two different contexts. And then, of course, I think it's Genesis 2 4 or Genesis 2 3 refers to the word Yom is used there to refer to the totality of the creation week. Sometimes it's translated as, as when God created the heavens and the earth. But there it's referring to, again, the totality of the creation week. So that's another use of the word Yom in the creation account.
1: So it's used in various ways there. And Walt Kaiser, you quoted, um, is one of the premier Old Testament. Scholars of our day, you know, Walt Kaiser, Gleason Archer, Bruce Waltke and others, you know, agree with the position you just stated there and they They know Hebrew better than uh, uh, the Jews. You know, when I first went into graduate school and I was reading their material, I nearly fell out of my chair because I. I was a staunch if you interpreted it any other way than a 24 hour period, you must be a heretic of some sort. So to read what these men, you know, these scholared godly men were saying really began to really open my eyes to this position of old earth creationism. Now, Fuzz, many say that old earth creationism opens the door to evolution. And there's a danger that that would then lead to, you know, deism and eventually atheism. Is this true? Uh, Yeah, I hear that that a concern
2: raised quite often, and it's not a concern by any means that we want to dismiss. But in my perspective, again, most people that are old Earth creationists are staunch critics of, of the evolutionary paradigm. They see fundamental issues with the idea that evolutionary mechanisms could explain the origin and the design and the history of life. And so just because you adopt the perspective that the Earth is old, that the universe is old, doesn't mean that you have to accept evolution as being conjoined with, the again, the antiquity of the earth and the antiquity of the universe. There's no reason that those two ideas have to be married together. And so I don't know that one necessarily entails the other. In fact, if I look at my experience, the opposite is true. I went from being an agnostic who embraced the evolutionary paradigm to somebody that converted to Christianity because of the problems I saw with the origin of life. But for the first six to 10 years of my Christian walk, I actually held to a version of theistic evolution where I thought when it came to the origin of life, God intervened to bring about the first cells. But from that point on, evolution essentially transpired. So I would have been a theistic evolutionist. But over time, as I uncovered more and more scientific problems with the theory of evolution, I essentially abandoned theistic evolution and embraced older creationism. So I just don't think that I would ever go from, again, an old Earth creationist perspective to a TE perspective because of the very real intractable problems that I see. And and many people that are old Earth creationists share that concern. Now, it is true in my experience that once somebody embraces theistic evolution, they are highly susceptible to transitioning from a position of theism to a position of deism or even atheism. Sadly, I know a number of people that espouse an atheistic version of evolution that actually took the journey from theistic evolution to agnosticism to atheism. So I do think that theistic evolution is a position where you could be very susceptible to abandoning the Christian worldview. And so I would share the concerns of young earth creationists that once you're in the TE camp, the theistic evolutionary camp, you are susceptible to sliding towards atheism. doesn't mean it's inevitable, but I know a lot of
1: people that have done that. Yes. Now, Fuzz, before we go into, you know, critiquing theistic evolution, there are different schools of theistic evolutionists, right? I mean, we're painting with a broad brush here, but I've been to conferences where there were theistic evolutionists arguing with the atheists against the intelligent design position. And I've also been at conferences where there's theistic evolutionists arguing with the intelligent design camp against the naturalists. So there's quite a range there when we talk about theistic evolution, isn't there?
2: There sure is. And that's a really important point that you bring up, Pat. And I'm glad that you did that because it's very easy to paint with a broad brush and there are people that embrace some versions or expressions of theistic evolution that I actually feel reasonably comfortable with. I wouldn't agree with it, but I I feel reasonably comfortable with it. But then there's other expressions that I think really push you towards the idea of deism and and this idea that God is not even involved whatsoever. There are some theistic evolutionists that say God is present at every moment of of the evolutionary process, intervening in ways that we can't see, to bring about his desired purposes, and so they see the hidden hand of God, you know, in the evolutionary process. Others would say that God is completely uninvolved, and that's an extreme position that I feel largely uncomfortable with, but a position that says God is intimately involved in every step of the way, though we may not be able to see it, well, again, I'm not comfortable with the idea that evolution could have that kind of creative power and potential. And I don't think that that necessarily aligns with Scripture. That position at least has God intimately involved and sees God as an indispensable part uh, of the evolutionary process. So I'm much more comfortable with that view.
1: Yes, and in fact, you know, for the high school student out there listening or the collegiate student at the public university, sometimes even at the Christian university, if you have a science teacher who believes in god and is teaching the science classes most of the time they're they're going to be theistic evolutionists so it's important to find out what kind of theistic evolutionists they are
2: yeah i agree i agree and at the end of the day you know as long as people who are holding that view again are willing to acknowledge places where their view may be deficient or has issues theologically or biblically or even scientifically they're willing to wrestle with that to me, I feel like there's an openness and an honesty to having you know, genuine dialogue and to having their views shaped from the input of other people. And, and that's a very different position than somebody that is deeply entrenched in that position that's unyielding and unwilling to move and is, and is unwilling to abandon or modify their position regardless of the, the biblical or the theological issues that arise. A lot of times it's even the attitude that that person brings to the table that's really very important.
1: Yes. Now, you state there are scientific and biblical reasons why you are not a theistic evolutionist. So let's begin with the science. I mean, what are some of the scientific reasons you believe make theistic evolution problematic?
2: Yeah, and the way that I like to kind of approach that question is to point out that there are three main reasons why I think scientifically one isn't compelled to accept the evolutionary paradigm as being the way to explain the origin and the history and the design of life. And I always like to go back to the statement made by the famous Russian geneticist, Theodosius Dobzhensky, who in the 1970s wrote these famous words that you might that you and your listeners may have heard, in which Dobzhensky said, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. In other words, he's making the claim that evolution has this explanatory power to account for the totality of everything that we see in biology. Yet, in my experience, that's absolutely not true. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I came to faith in Christ in part because of the very real problems I saw with the original life problem, with the original life question, that there is no way, in my view, that molecules can self-organize into the very first cells through an evolutionary process. And in fact, many people that work in that area that are atheists and deeply committed to the evolutionary paradigm will readily agree we don't have an explanation for the origin of life. But as we step through the history of life, there are these key transitions in life's history where, again, the evolutionary paradigm seems to be incapable of providing an explanation like the origin of complex cells or eukaryotic cells. There's not a clear, robust explanation for how eukaryotic cells would have emerged. Or when we come to the origin of body plans, we see the Cambrian explosion, where out of nowhere, sophisticated multicellular animals appear. And again, this defies an evolutionary explanation, or evolution can't account for consciousness, or it can't account for our capacity as human beings to express ourselves through the use of symbols, that it can not account for human language and hence human exceptionalism. And so when we look at the key events in life's history, this is where the evolutionary paradigm breaks down. And in fact, every one of these transitions seems to happen abruptly, explosively, without any kind of evidence for transitional forms or transitions documenting the movement from one regime of complexity to the other. And that sudden appearance of body plans or of eukaryotic cells or the very first cells on earth, or the sudden appearance of human exceptionalism that we see in the archaeological record, to me looks like a a creation event. And so that's one reason. The other reason is it's very clear that there are places where the evolutionary paradigm has failed predictions, where the evolutionary paradigm expects Certain features in biology, and in fact, we see features that run completely contrary to that. And then, lastly, I would point out that many of the evidence that people point to as being unassailable evidence for biological evolution could readily be explained in a creation model perspective. So, for example, many people argue that the shared features that organisms possess reflect a common descent. That is, that those shared features were in the ancestral group that gave rise to the different evolutionary lineages, and those shared features are retained as those different lineages diverge. But another way to think about those shared features is that they reflect common design as opposed to common descent, that a creator used the same designs and varied them in different groups of organisms uh, for his uh, creative purposes. So in other words, There's some real scientific issues with the evolutionary paradigm, failed predictions, the key transitions that evolution can't account for, and the very best evidence for evolution is readily accommodated in a creation model framework.
1: I think you bring up some very significant points there. The Darwin model has not explained uh, the origin of life. Although many of us were taught in high school and college, indeed, it does explain the origin of life, the primordial soup model and the Urey-Miller experiment. But do those models explain how life originated? There's some significant problems with those models, aren't there?
2: They sure are. And, for example, most students taking biology courses, whether in high school or in college, introductory uh, biology courses, at least in college, would be exposed to the Miller-Urey experiment where uh, Stanley Miller assembled this glass apparatus where he was trying to simulate the conditions of the early Earth and was able to produce amino acids, which are the the building blocks of proteins. And on that basis, argued that this idea of chemical evolution is reasonable, that maybe life could have evolved on Earth from molecules into the very first cells. The problem is is that experiment is is no longer considered valid, even by original life researchers, because the conditions that Miller used in his experiment to simulate the conditions of the early Earth were the wrong conditions. He didn't know it at the time, but the view of what the early Earth would have been like has changed since Miller did that experiment. And when we now input those conditions into that Miller-Urey type of experimental design, we wind up getting nothing formed whatsoever. That experiment is irrelevant, even though it shows up in biology textbooks. Uh, or this idea that life emerges out of a, a primordial soup. Well, if that's the case, there should be evidence for a primordial soup on the Earth, in the oldest rocks on Earth. And when we probe those oldest rocks on Earth, we see no evidence uh, for a primordial soup whatsoever. That idea is a scientific myth. It's not an established scientific fact whatsoever. And so here's just two examples of claims that are made in biology textbooks that actually are contrary to what the prevailing view is uh, within the scientific community. But yet these two pieces of evidence that are described in biology textbooks are so often used to give credibility to the idea of chemical
1: evolution. Yes, you know, and you state intelligent design is the best answer and often, I hear when evolutionists talk, they seem to be kind of saying that, but instead of an intelligent designer, they'll often say nature. Nature moved and they won't say created, but nature moved and this developed or nature did such and such and this developed, you know, and so it seems like instead of saying an intelligent creator, they're using nature. You find that to be uh, the case sometimes? Yes, that's an excellent point that you're
2: bringing up, Pat. The language that, again, that evolutionary biologists often use is language that essentially conveys intent and purpose, a teleology of sorts, right? But they're ascribing that intent and purpose, as you are pointing out, to nature instead of a creator. But on top of that, when you look at the way biologists describe biochemical and biological systems, the use of design language is unavoidable. And so there seems to be a real purpose and a real teleology behind nature and, and a real element of genuine design in nature that make better sense in a creation model's perspective than from an evolutionary perspective. So, you know, evolutionary biologists can't help themselves but to speak in ways that, that seemingly would be what you would hear a creationist say as opposed to somebody that thinks mechanism alone explains everything.
0: We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, please give him a call. That number in Hawaii is 483-0586, or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. So for the opportunity to donate, head on over to our webpage. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share it with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerath.